Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host Navem and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. Throughout the course of history, military alliances have existed to act either as a counterbalancing force or to repel a perceived threat, but are often dismantled when the need for a balance is no longer deemed necessary. While the origins of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, can be found in its members' perceived need to balance the rising power of the Soviet Union, in the aftermath of World War II, it's interesting to note that the collapse of the USSR in 1991 did not lead to a concurrent breakup of NATO. NATO's origins and early objectives are well documented, initially created as a countervailing force to the Berlin blockade and threat of communism aggression. Its existence was formally announced with the ratification of the Washington Treaty on 4th April 1949. The ensuing bipolar world consisted of the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact, formed in 1955 on one side, and the United States with NATO on the other. Ultimately, this created a raison d'etre for both alliances due to the threat of a nuclear attack and the menacing presence of the Mutual Assured Destruction Concept, or MAD for short which created symbiotic relationships between partners of respective alliances. However, a rapid sequence of events beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the breakup of the Warsaw Pact in April 1991 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union on 25th December 1991, meant that by 1992, for the first time in its history, NATO found itself without an enemy. As such, after the end of Cold War hostilities, NATO needed to repurpose the alliance if it was to survive and stay relevant as a functioning organisation, mainly because geography as a central feature of geopolitics began to lose its significance. And, for instance, countries with similar ideologies and values began to unite by establishing post-Cold War regional or even global organisations. And as a first step towards reforming NATO as a military alliance, a new strategic concept was developed during its Rome summit in 1991, which was based on cooperation with other organizations, while also reinforcing the principle of collective defense. Therefore, NATO expanded its responsibilities to peacekeeping and crisis management, And at the 1994 Brussels summit, President Clinton proposed a Partnership for Peace, or PFP, which laid the foundation for expanding the NATO alliance eastward. But from NATO's perspective, the alliance has succeeded in reinventing itself by emphasizing the role of defense and readjusting its scope for security towards an expansive concept of global security. And more importantly, following the publication of the Human Development Report 1994, the United Nations presented a compelling argument about a shift in security from the traditional state-centric approach to a more liberal, human-focused one in light of the human suffering caused by 
genocidal tragedy such as Rwanda in 1994 and the Balkan Wars between 1992 and 95. Following earlier international agreements such as the Millennium Declaration 2000 and the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, in 2005 the United Nations General Assembly unanimously adopted the Doctrine of Responsibility to Protect, or R2P, a political commitment recognizing the obligation of sovereign states to prevent and protect its population from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. Essentially, the responsibility to protect, or R2P, created a new framework to assess humanitarian interventions, introducing a new paradigm of global security while simultaneously recalibrated NATO's mission on a permanent basis. In recent years, the perceived legitimacy of NATO as enforcers of R2P has increased given the UN Security Council's limited military capacity and its lack of consensus to enforce peacekeeping missions in volatile areas. Over the past three decades, NATO has been transformed from a closed military alliance to a mobile crisis manager through crisis prevention, conflict management and the stabilization of post-conflict situations. And this included working more closely with NATO's international partners such as the United Nations and the European Union. NATO's transformation was significant in several respects because the alliance expanded and incorporated new allies across Europe. It implemented new overseas missions outside its own boundaries. It expanded its capabilities from peacekeeping and reconstruction missions to humanitarian aid in the fight against piracy and global terrorism. In addition, in the last two decades, NATO transformed its military and modernized its effectiveness. Pre-1992, NATO's strategic force was based on a largely conscript army and air superiority. However, in the 21st century, it has been essentially confronted by new global challenges and the alliance has adapted by transforming its military capability to small, highly skilled units which could be rapidly deployed using advanced technologies. Therefore, changes in the international system were a fundamental factor that propelled NATO's new political and military developments, so much so that it is not unprecedented for NATO to act at the request of the UN during a large-scale humanitarian crisis. Inevitably, all global crises that bear an overarching element of human tragedy include a political dimension, which means that NATO as a military alliance has become a political tool to implement the agenda of advanced Western countries towards other areas of the world. And as a result of this, NATO's military excursions in recent years have been heavily criticised as a Western foreign policy tool in the guise of humanitarian expeditions, leading to controversy over NATO's ability to deliver on its statecraft solutions. Consequently, one area which has been affected by NATO's military missions is Russia's sphere of influence, leading to a fundamental reform of Russia's relations with the Western military alliance since the mid-2000s. And in particular, NATO interventions in Kosovo, Afghanistan and Libya have forced Russia to rethink its security strategy and modernize its military capabilities. Moreover, in the current multipolar world, 
Certain observers believe that the ongoing military conflict in Ukraine is a direct consequence of a decades-long feud between NATO and Russia, which going forward could well determine the balance of global power and social affairs in Europe, Caucasia, South Central Asia, and in certain parts of the Middle East. And so throughout the remainder of this episode, my aim will be to explain how major crises since the early 2000s have been shaped by NATO-Russia relations. The central theme argues that differences in NATO and Russian geopolitical discourses towards crises in Kosovo, Libya and Afghanistan have led to reciprocal disagreements resulting in negative relations with Russia. So let's begin by considering the influence of geopolitics. The term geopolitics was originally coined by the Swedish political scientist Rudolf Chelen, and it analyzes geographic influences on power relationships and their effect of international relations. Throughout most of the 20th century, geopolitics was limited to a geographical perception of the world in which different political forces and states competed with each other. For instance, the expansionist goals of Nazi Germany, which led to the Second World War, led to geopolitics being viewed in a negative light. Conversely, the Cold War between East and West encouraged the return of geopolitics as a tool to shape foreign policy. But after the end of the Cold War, new forms of discourse emerged, challenging the traditional view of geopolitics as a singular guide to world affairs. And this applied to areas such as global terror networks, NATO's embrace of former enemies, under a new cooperative banner, the enlargement of NATO's military alliance to the Balkans and Eastern Europe, or the problem of failed states and the spread of ethnic conflicts, and even the spread of radical religious beliefs. So changes in the international system challenge academics and think tanks to revise previous theories, including the geopolitical approach, and adopt them towards a post-Cold War perspective. For instance, Concepts such as Neo-Eurasianism and Neo-Atlanticism are often seen as attempts to revive the importance of traditional political geography and mapping within the present international order. But a new school of thought emerged during the 1990s known as critical geopolitics, which presented a more critical view of modern geopolitics by arguing that all recognized states are essentially territorial units within a broad international system, all possessing a distinct geopolitical culture. And geopolitical culture is viewed as a state's unique identity. Therefore, its position and influence in world affairs can be defined as a geopolitical tradition. But states or agencies do not limit themselves to only one geopolitical tradition because there may be multiple traditions as influenced by a series of factors. And these include For instance, a state's geographical situation, historical formation, discourses surrounding national identity, theories which connect a state to the wider world, the networks of power that operate within the state. This analysis illustrates that geopolitics extends far beyond political geography and mapping. For instance, there may be three different geopolitical traditions in the Russian Federation, such as Russia within Europe, a Eurasian theory and Russia as a bridge between East and West. 
And so each of these traditions was influenced by particular historical factors, such as a Slavic culture or Western institutions and agencies, or by particular technological and economic developments. Therefore, the Russian geopolitical tradition in Europe has also been influenced by its European neighbours and collectively by the NATO alliance. So this helps us to better understand the actions taken by Russia within the international order. In other words, NATO's actions invoked a particular Russian response and counter-reaction which have led to a series of disagreements and cooperation. Critical geopolitics involves an appreciation of how political thought develops and puts forward mental maps of the world as structures for future action. These mental maps are created by academics and then adopted by politicians and then finally disseminated by the media. They form context to determine tactics and develop political strategies which can then be moulded to form the attitudes of the wider population. This body of academia came to be associated with another major development in the social sciences known as postmodernism. This concept maintains that there are no absolute truths, no grand theories can provide universal explanations and guides to action. Truths are simply beliefs on which people act, and there are multiple truths of which none can claim primacy. Essentially, people learn their truths from others through context using direct or indirect sources of interaction. Equally, the same argument applies to countries because they maintain dialogue through international relations according to spatial restrictions, and therefore contexts are territorially defined. Also, critical geopolitics has been influenced by the late eminent scholar of literature at Columbia University, Edward Said. In his 1979 book, Orientalism, he portrays how Western societies created images of the East in opposition to themselves. These images portrayed in literature and other media are the basis for attitudes towards many non-Western cultures presenting the other as not only different but also inferior and thus not deserving equal treatment and respect. And when we apply this critical analysis to NATO's past historical events and new global strategy, we're able to view world affairs within a comparative framework because events in one place have global ramifications elsewhere. In other words, NATO is an international agency and its geopolitical discourse guide the future direction of regional or world politics. And to explain this further, we see that NATO's main focus can be defined as Euro-Atlantic collective defence, but equally NATO is now a hybrid collective agency acting for conflict prevention in the role of crisis manager. That's because on one hand NATO concentrates on the security of its core Euro-Atlantic space, but on the other it seeks to expand its capabilities and participate in various operations and missions around the globe. As mentioned earlier, critical geopolitics argues that states do not limit themselves to only one geopolitical tradition. They are influenced by a series of unique factors. In this case, NATO members represent allegiance to a certain Western culture and tradition, which ultimately unites them as a unique agency in the international order. So although NATO acts as an international agency based on the political decisions of its member states, it's also true that member states are bound to political and military decisions within NATO, such as NATO's Article 5. 
This policy stipulates that if a NATO ally is the victim of an armed attack, each and every other member of the alliance will consider this act of violence as an armed attack against all members and will take the necessary actions to assist the ally. So what does this all mean? Well, quite simply, the approach of critical geopolitics helps to put matters into perspective. NATO is a formidable international military alliance compared to Russia, which is a sole state actor. Therefore, NATO's strategic outlook cannot be viewed in isolation because it will inevitably lead to reciprocal action from a major military power such as Russia. In addition, this clash between state identities means both are stakeholders claiming a right to their geopolitical culture and ultimately territory. And as we progress through the episode, I'd like to expand on the concept of critical geopolitics by distinguishing between three key elements. And they are as follows, theoretical geopolitics. This refers to the analyses of think tanks and specialists such as academic scholars, etc. Secondly, functional geopolitics. This refers to the decisions of policymakers, official documents and statements and speeches. And finally, common geopolitics. This refers to the discourse of the media. So now that we have a brief understanding of the importance of geopolitics, this helps to explain the geopolitical discourse of both NATO and Russia towards previous crises in Kosovo, Libya and Afghanistan. It also offers an opportunity to see how both sides have presented these crises within their own geopolitical frameworks and ultimately how NATO's past military interventions have influenced relations with Russia and how this in turn has affected the ongoing international order. So in the following sections of the episode, my objectives will be to firstly outline and compare the concepts behind the relative NATO and Russian geopolitical discourses in relation to Kosovo, Afghanistan and Libya. Secondly, to address the question why NATO intervened in the affairs of these three countries. Thirdly, explain the consequences for their mutual relations and cooperation within the international arena. And fourthly, how have NATO military interventions affected relations with Russia after the Cold War? So let's begin our analysis by examining each of the three countries involved. Firstly, by considering the background to Kosovo. The Balkan states became a geopolitical flashpoint where Western powers and Russia were in constant rivalry with each other to strengthen their influence. And since the beginning of the 20th century, Kosovo has been a major conflict zone on the European continent, stemming from the demise of the Ottoman Empire. At the end of World War I, the Ottomans were forced to hand over Kosovo to Serbia and it became a small part of southern Serbia. In addition, disputes between Albanians and Serbs stretched back centuries. In 1974, under the Yugoslavian constitution, Kosovo became an autonomous region within the Serbian Republic. But following the political rise of Slobodan Milosevic, relations between Serbs and Albanians continued to erode. In 1991, following the disintegration of Yugoslavia, tensions escalated as the crisis took on religious dimensions. The Serbs were Orthodox Christians and the Kosovo Albanians were Muslims, which meant the core conflict over the legal status of Kosovo could not be resolved. During the disintegration of Yugoslavia in the 1990s, both the Serbian forces and the Kosovan 
Liberation Army, or KLA, became radicalized and the conflict in the Kosovo region escalated. As casualties increased, the international community began searching for a diplomatic solution. Neither the threat of NATO airstrikes in the fall of 1998 nor the peace negotiations at Ramboulay in February 1999 helped resolve the political gridlock. At the beginning of 1999, renewed clashes between Serbian forces and the KLA became the justification by NATO to deploy forces in a military campaign called Operation Allied Force. On February 17, 2008, Kosovo declared its independent from Serbia, but from the outset it became a controversial topic in the international community. From a Russian perspective, the independence of Kosovo was an example of Western imperial arrogance, a manifestation of the policy of diktat within international affairs, in other words, a set of rules dictated by a foreign power over an unpopular local power, in this case Serbia. In a situation remarkably similar to the current Ukraine conflict, the independence of Kosovo was supported solely by pro-Western countries, claiming it to be a unique case involving the expression of democratic freedom. Consequently, different geopolitical discourses ensued between NATO member states and Russia. So let's now take a closer look at the geopolitical discourses during the Kosovo crisis. When NATO's military campaign Operation Allied Force began on 23rd March 1999. The Allies were united by a shared belief that NATO was acting to promote liberal democratic values. The massacres in Bosnia in 1995 were a seminal event in changing the course of history in Kosovo. One of the main reasons provided by Western leaders for the intervention was to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe similar to Bosnia. In addition, NATO believed that airstrikes would force Slobodan Milosevic to negotiate with NATO. And from NATO's perspective, their theoretical and functional geopolitical position was strengthened by two main elements. Firstly, success in the 1995 Bosnia crisis enhanced NATO's image as a crisis manager outside its military boundaries. And secondly, the controversial Clinton doctrine legitimized the use of bombing. The Clinton doctrine was part of a broader strategic vision which was slowly unveiled in the first Clinton administration. One component of this doctrine proclaimed that the United States had a vested interest in maintaining international stability and must be ready to act on its own or in conjunction with its most trusted allies, such as NATO. Therefore, it would forcefully intervene to prevent human rights abuses without the express authority of the UN Security Council. Essentially, US and NATO forces would engage in military conflict based on the principles of morality, human rights, etc. And it was criticized by Russia as a selective policy because when NATO forces began bombing Serbia, other areas of humanitarian crisis such as Rwanda and Sudan were conveniently ignored. According to an official statement issued by NATO, quote, its overall political objectives remain to help achieve a peaceful solution to the crisis in Kosovo by contributing to the response of the international community and military action is intended to support its political aims. So this 
controversial and contradictory statement meant that NATO had launched a military operation in order to achieve peace and stability by force. The Serbian authorities blamed NATO for an illegal act of aggression against a sovereign state while the United Nations found itself sidelined by NATO arguing that Security Council authority for the bombing campaign was neither sought nor given. On one side of the equation NATO Actions had violated international law by not seeking UN authorization to launch the bombing against Serbia. But on the other side, NATO presented a united front depicting a well-organized military alliance which intervened to stabilize European interests. The common geopolitics or media interest created in the Kosovo crisis is also worth noting and has subsequently been referred to as the CNN effect by shaping policy developments. The global media agencies influence agenda setting or the functional geopolitics of NATO. Emotional reactions garnered by the media towards atrocities and the humanitarian crisis in Kosovo were a key factor in influencing NATO policies. For instance, after several weeks of airstrikes, the media informed the public about the flow of refugees from Kosovo. But prior to this, media reporting had concentrated solely on the outcome of the airstrikes. And as a result, NATO's framing of the Kosovo crisis switched from airstrikes to the deployment of Kosovo Peacekeeping Force, or K4, and the distribution of humanitarian aid. Overall, functional geopolitics emerged as a key factor in shaping NATO's geopolitical discourse, mainly by presenting the alliance as a benefactor in putting an end to the use of terror against ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. NATO's intervention in Kosovo eventually led to the creation of, of an independent Kosovo state, which is recognized by mainly pro-Western countries. But to this day, Belgrade continues to see Kosovo as its own territory. Meanwhile, Russia and China are among many countries which have yet to recognize Kosovo's independence. From a strategic viewpoint, Kosovo is regarded as merely a buffer zone or outpost of NATO in the Balkan region, but also it is a tangible reminder of the ideological struggle between Russia and NATO. And so in the next section, the geopolitical analysis will address the Afghanistan crisis by first considering the background to Afghanistan. The first disputes over Afghanistan between Western powers and Russia first appeared in the 19th century when the expansion of Tsarist Russia towards Central Asia threatened the interests of the British Empire in South Asia and was commonly referred to as the Great Game. In 1919, the first attempts to establish a centralized state of Afghanistan was plagued by constant rivalry between various tribal groups of Afghans. Later, during the Cold War period, Afghanistan became a decade-long proxy war between the US and the USSR, following the Soviet invasion in 1979. However, due to American military aid to Afghanistan, the Soviet Union failed to achieve a victory, resulting in a withdrawal of Soviet forces in 1989. At the beginning of the post-Cold War era, armed insurgent groups took control of the civilian government. And eventually, during the period 1996 to 2001, a majority of Afghanistan's territory was controlled by the brutal Taliban regime, which called for a global jihad against the United States and its allies and provided a safe haven for al-Qaeda terrorists. Following the 9-11 events in September 2001, 
NATO's Article 5 was invoked for the first time in its history to respond to the new scourge of international terrorism. And as a result, Afghanistan was targeted because it had hosted insurgent terrorist groups which paved the way for NATO to act for the first time outside of the European continent. So let's now take a closer look at the geopolitical discourses during the Afghanistan crisis. A few days after 9-11, NATO issued a press release stating that it was not planning to invade Afghanistan or any other country. At the same time, NATO was unable to participate in the US military campaign in Afghanistan. Nevertheless, by October 2001, NATO had redefined its initial role and created measures to allow it to participate in the new fight against terrorism. Subsequently, NATO actively supported the US military campaign, Operation Enduring Freedom, but the alliance soon adopted a greater role in 2003 when NATO became the official lead organization behind ISAF, which stood for International Security Assistance Force becoming one of the largest coalitions in history. And at its height, the force was more than 130,000 strong with troops from 51 NATO and partner nations focused on assisting the Afghan government in restoring security in Kabul and its surroundings. In 2004, the tasks of NATO had again expanded by assisting the Afghan central government in confronting domestic challenges such as narcotics trafficking, insurgents and militias. And until 2005, NATO's performance in Kabul and its surroundings was successful and effective. NATO member states pushed the Taliban out of strategic areas and helped to install an indigenous government and limited ISAF's casualties. But the 9-11 events changed the way Americans and Europeans viewed the world because mass paranoia towards terrorism created a new image of an invisible menace which became the main challenge to Western governments. As a result, NATO focused closely on military threats to the alliance and through initiatives such as the Terrorism Threat Intelligence Unit. During the first few years in Afghanistan, the international perception of NATO changed as it appeared as a global policeman with the United States leading from the front. But NATO's involvement in Afghanistan to combat terrorism could not have functioned without the aid of its international partners, in particular Russia. However, after the year 2005, the situation began to change as NATO entered a protracted war against the Taliban and terrorism itself. Overall, NATO's geopolitical discourse towards the Afghan crisis could be defined as negative. Division within NATO, rising casualties, growing criticism from the media and public scepticism about wasted resources and a war without purpose eventually transformed NATO's positive geopolitical discourse. And in the following section, the geopolitical analysis will address the Libyan crisis by first considering the background to Libya. The end of World War II ushered in a period of post-colonialism which brought changes to many parts of the world, including Libya. In 1951, the withdrawal of the Italian military propelled Libyan national ambitions. For a brief period, the monarchy was restored under King Idris, who proclaimed a new federal kingdom of Libya following the unification of three key provinces. The pro-Western monarchy had close ties with the United States and the United Kingdom, which proceeded to establish military bases in Libya. Consequently, the foreign military bases provoked anger among the local population and stirred a wave of Arab nationalism. 
but the UK was already overstretched due to the dismantling of its overseas empire and was unable to offer military assistance to the Libyan monarchy. Eventually, in 1969, Libya fell under the control of a new charismatic leader, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, in a bloodless coup seeking to change the ruling elite. Following the events of the Arab Spring in 2011, widespread unrest and mass protests had already gripped North Africa and the Middle East. Libyan groups, following the progress in Tunisia and Egypt, made their own demands and launched demonstrations against the government. The Gaddafi regime used brutal force to disperse crowds and the clashes between government forces and protesters intensified, eventually leading to open armed conflict and civil war. And there were calls for stronger international pressure, which led to the endorsement of a no-fly zone on March 17, 2011, as UN Security Council Resolution 1973 was implemented essentially giving a green light to NATO and its international partners to carry out a sustained bombing campaign. So let's take a closer look at the geopolitical discourses during the Libyan crisis. According to paragraph 4 of UN Security Council 1973, quote, the UN authorizes NATO to take all necessary measures to protect civilians and civilian populated areas under the threat of attack. But this official document did not include any definitions and words pertaining to offensive military actions. On March 19, 2011, when the NATO-led coalition started to launch an attack on Libya, disputes within the international community appeared, revealing that the resolution, especially the phrase to take all necessary measures, was interpreted differently by various countries within NATO. NATO intervention in Libya came under the policy guidance of R2P, or Responsibility to Protect, which was adopted by the UN in 2005 as a core tenant of the international community's approach to preventing atrocities such as war crimes and genocide around the world. In Libya, it was employed to prevent the Libyan government from using force against its own people, while other commentators have argued that NATO's entry into Libya was the result of a stalemate between opposing rebel factions. The concept of protecting the Libyan people was also interpreted differently within NATO because at the start of the campaign, in order to halt the advancing Libyan army, NATO bombed strategic targets such as airfields, depots and military bases. However, as NATO hostilities intensified, it launched airstrikes which were simultaneously coordinated with the opposition troops and in addition, significant volumes of supply drops supported the opposition fighters. And this led to accusations that Western leaders sought to secretly remove the Gaddafi regime and replace it with a transitional government. Although there is common agreement that Gaddafi's response to the Arab Spring was extremely violent and warranted some form of international sanctions, nevertheless, observers have argued that it was not enough to launch a military intervention under Resolution 1973 and that the real motive was not the legitimate R2P mandate but instead the emphasis was regime change. And as the conflict intensified the sanctity of humanitarian intervention gradually diminished as the ulterior motive of toppling the Libyan regime slowly emerged especially when Gaddafi's convoy was attacked by NATO aircraft on 20th October 
after departing its stronghold of Sirt, and he was subsequently killed by groups of Thuwar or revolutionaries the following day. And this clearly demonstrated that the attacking NATO force was overstepping its mandate from the United Nations by providing close air support to the rebels instead of establishing a no-fly zone or protecting civilians. Furthermore, NATO was conducting an average of 150 airstrikes per day, killing hundreds if not thousands of people, which indicated an open disregard for the R2P policy. And the sheer volume of missile strikes highlighted the priority given to cripple the Libyan military, allowing successful regime change to occur. However, the NATO victory came at a cost with three significant consequences. Firstly, civilian casualties. UN Security Council resolutions 1970 and 1973, as well as the Operation Unified Protector Mandate, focused on the protection of civilians. But thus far, with over 9,700 strike sorties, NATO has never confirmed civilian casualties and also refused to investigate civilian deaths caused by its airstrikes. Furthermore, while NATO celebrated Gaddafi's death, the alliance essentially turned its back on Libya as it was consumed by rampant lawlessness and some of the most horrific human rights violations perpetrated by the rebels against both real and perceived Gaddafi loyalists. Furthermore, the final death toll has varied between estimates of 8,000 by official US government sources to 30,000 as reported by internal Libyan health ministry sources. And the second major consequence was the existence of a political vacuum. NATO intervention in Libya created a power vacuum after Colonel Gaddafi's death and an abandoned state left in complete anarchy. This created a safe haven for a variety of radical factions from Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups to the Islamic State. The fallout also unleashed a wave of tribal warfare which until then had been marginal or suppressed by the Gaddafi regime. And the third major consequence was NATO's credibility, which came under intense scrutiny. According to an article published by James Patterson, a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Manchester, UK, in the journal Ethics and International Affairs, 2011, Dr. Patterson points to a concept known as mission creep, referring to the constant morphing of the Libya intervention. The first NATO credibility problem concerns the change of the primary objective from protecting civilians to regime change. The second credibility issue for NATO concerns the selective nature of interventions. The moral argument in Libya was particularly suspect because the alliance failed to act in similar situations such as Bahrain, Syria and Yemen. Third credibility issue concerns future vetoes by Russia and China at the United Nations. Both countries were concerned with the wording and the rapid nature of NATO intervention in Libya. This made it more likely that both Russia and China would veto any future humanitarian interventions in the name of security, especially if it involves their respective zone of influence. And so I'd like to focus attention on the final area of analysis as set out in my early objectives, which is how past NATO interventions have affected relations with Russia. Let's begin with the effects of the Kosovo crisis. For several centuries, Russia has had special interests in the Balkans regions, but during the Boris Yeltsin era, 91-1999, Russia was strategically weak and could not offer a decisive role within the international arena. 
During this period, the Russian Federation's concerns extended only as far as maintaining close ties with the former Republic of Yugoslavia, hereafter referred to as FRY, also to maintain a balance of power and repel the presence of other international actors in the region. But the eventual outcome proved to be the opposite of Russian expectations. Because from the outset, Russia's geopolitical discourse was hostile and critical to NATO's military operation against FRY, and this could be linked to Russia's past experiences in Afghanistan and Chechnya between 94 and 96, when the application of hard power did not solve ethnic problems. Additionally, Russia was deeply concerned about the airstrikes in FRY, where Russian commerce was interrupted, in particular the introduction of the EU embargo, which prohibited the sale and supply of petroleum and related products to the FRY, leading to heavy Russian financial losses. But despite this setback, Russia still sought to be involved in international decision-making to rebuild the devastated areas. The NATO invasion of 99 and subsequent geopolitical discourse towards the crisis in Kosovo was the main catalyst which eroded relations between NATO and Russia. At the same time, the senior counselor of the Russian embassy in the United States, Denis Gonchar, argued that NATO intervention in Kosovo was the biggest violation of law under international standards and by bombing Serbia, it was inevitable that relations between Russia and NATO would be frozen. Despite NATO's decision in March 1999 to go ahead with Operation Allied Force, without UN Security Council backing, this action remained controversial within the NATO alliance. But member states also knew that in order to avoid Russian opposition in the UN Security Council, rapid decision-making was required. Even though Russia could not respond adequately to NATO's strong geopolitical discourse, an important precedent had been set. Among Russian strategists and policymakers, NATO's military activities were now being seen as a clear threat. Russia considered that there were only two options, either to accept NATO's dominant role or to challenge it. As a result, Russia gradually started to increase its focus on Europe by addressing its strategic weakness by building a stronger and more self-reliant state. The subsequent changes in Russia's geopolitical discourse towards the Kosovo crisis were discernible almost a decade later when Kosovo declared its independence in 2008. In February 2007, Russian President Vladimir Putin conveyed Russia's significance in European affairs during his keynote speech at the Munich Security Conference. And it emphasized two matters of fundamental importance. First, Russia intended to play a greater role in the international arena, and secondly, Russia would be pursuing an independent approach in international relations based on its own political and economic interests. In January 2008, just one month before the declaration of Kosovo's independence, Moscow issued a new foreign policy strategy document outlining future relations between NATO and Russia. And in this document, it emphasized that Russia would be recognized as an equal partner based on international law and the balance of power. More specifically, one security at the expense of the Russian Federation security would not be tolerated. In addition, it expressed a negative approach towards NATO and the active role it played towards the independence of Kosovo because it ignored Serbian interests while tacitly accepting the separatist crimes of the KLA. Also, Russian officials believed that Kosovo's independence would be the cause of further regional conflicts, ultimately challenging 
Russian geopolitical discourse towards European affairs. Russia saw its multilateral agreement over Kosovo as a strategic move to counterbalance and compensate for its previous weakness vis-à-vis NATO, but it was still unable to seriously rival the major Western powers. Furthermore, Russia declared its opposition to the Kosovo Declaration because the UN Resolution 1244 did not justify the independence of Kosovo because it was in violation of previous international agreements, including the Charter of the United Nations. But as was the case in 1999, Russia's views were not taken into account and NATO simply acted unilaterally. Hence, the Kosovo War in 1999 marked the beginning of a long-term decline in NATO-Russia relations. Because within a decade, Russia had become more politically independent and openly hostile towards NATO's unilateral policies and military operations. It also divided the international community, including NATO itself. Some observers argued that this was the beginning of a new Cold War in Europe, where permanent divisions between NATO and Russian geopolitical discourse began to emerge. The disputes which followed over Crimea and later in eastern Ukraine proved that Kosovo's case was a precedent that has different interpretations among Russian and NATO geopolitical discourses. NATO's strategy and political decisions negatively influence relations with the Russian Federation, and Russia's experience reinforced the ongoing perception of mistrust towards NATO. With the pronounced change in its geopolitical discourse, Russia legitimately empowered to defend its position in Europe and the Caucasus, and vehemently oppose future NATO activities. So let's turn our attention to how the Afghanistan crisis affected Russia-NATO relations. In February 2000, new Russian President Vladimir Putin reached out to Western leaders to begin thawing NATO-Russia relations, which had been frozen after the Kosovo War. The subsequent 9-11 events signaled to Russian politicians just how far terrorism could extend by threatening a superpower such as the United States. Equally, Moscow was deeply concerned about its own separatist regions and the rise of global terrorism. Consequently, it began to pursue more pragmatic relations with NATO and the US. From the outset, Russia clearly stated its discourse towards the threat of terrorism and President Putin even raised the possibility of Russian membership within NATO. Besides the menace of terrorism, drug trafficking was another concern that led Russia to cooperate with NATO. At that time, Afghanistan was a leading producer of poppies used for making heroin and supplied 80% of the global market. Moscow believed that cooperation with NATO could solve more problems than just terrorism, compared to 1999 when the Russian geopolitical discourse towards Kosovo and NATO was highly negative. After several years, there were significant changes in Russia-West relations, first The structure of the Russian geopolitical culture was shaped by changes in its state apparatus with new political leaders emerging and better relations with neighbours. Second, Russia was still economically and politically weak, hence pragmatism was necessary. Thirdly, the Russian outlook towards Asia was influenced by the threat of terrorism in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Hence, the Russian geopolitical discourse was more favourable to the Afghanistan crisis. And so for the next few years, NATO-Russian relations with regard to Afghanistan became much closer by focusing on specific threats to both sides, such as civilian aircraft, critical infrastructure, military 
crisis management, counterterrorism, non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, WMD, ensuring security cooperation, to continue ongoing discussions at the NATO-Russia Council, as well as the offer to provide practical support to the NATO-led ISAF force in Afghanistan. President Putin's decision to support NATO in the fight against terrorism and his redefinition of national interest led to an important change in the Russian geopolitical discourse by allowing the Russian Federation to return to the international arena and participate in the decision-making process at a global level. Ultimately, Russia normalized its relations with NATO and helped stabilize Afghanistan. So let's turn our attention back to Libya, which is the final discourse to be analyzed in this section. How did the Libyan crisis affect Russia-NATO relations? In March 2011, when NATO launched its bombing campaign against the Gaddafi regime, several key features in the Russian geopolitical discourse towards Libya emerged. On the one hand, Russia's theoretical geopolitics accused NATO of overstepping UN Resolution 1973 by launching airstrikes against Libya on the basis of protecting civilians. Also, Russia criticized NATO for violating UN Resolution 1970, which was intended to impose an arms embargo on Libya, yet the French provided military supplies to the insurgents. Nevertheless, Russia attempted to become a mediator in the Libyan crisis by jointly working together with NATO to implement the UN Security Council resolution. However, Russian intervention was not accepted by NATO or its partners. Russia sought to resolve the conflict peacefully, largely due to pragmatic reasons. This was because a few years before the Arab Spring, Russia agreed with the Gaddafi regime to sign a bilateral economic agreement where Russia would cancel all Libyan debt in return for Russian businesses to develop the Libyan civilian infrastructure by building railroads, factories, etc. Eventually, the rejections from NATO were also interpreted as a snub by the elite international order and subsequently led to a counter-reaction from the Russian geopolitical discourse, which became highly negative. Vladimir Putin harshly condemned NATO airstrikes on Libya by arguing that no one had the right to punish Muammar Gaddafi without trial and the country's entire infrastructure was being destroyed using a controversial bombing campaign. Overall, Russia was negatively influenced by NATO's geopolitical discourse towards the crisis in Libya. It became a real challenge for Russia because it was a stark reminder of NATO's ongoing unilateral decisions in the international arena following the independence of Kosovo. And subsequently, Russia opposed other NATO unilateral decisions, such as the ongoing Syrian war, which is now entering its second decade. For a certain time, Syria had the potential of becoming a duplicate scenario of Libya, as it became a proxy war between Russia supporting the Syrian government and NATO sponsoring opposition groups. And so before summing up with some final remarks, I'd like to briefly review the short-term effectiveness of the two NATO bombing campaigns. Firstly, let's look at Kosovo. While looking at the short-term success of NATO's Operation Allied Force, it was considered to be a political and military success for NATO, but a catastrophic humanitarian failure, according to author Taylor Seabolt in his 2007 book entitled Humanitarian Military Intervention, The Conditions for Success and Failure. It accelerated violent attacks and precipitated a humanitarian catastrophe. 
The number of people killed was 20 times higher after the intervention, and more than 90% of the Kosovo population had been forced to flee their homes, according to the Kosovo report published in 2000 by the Independent International Commission on Kosovo. Operation Allied Force may have ended a supreme humanitarian emergency, but it simultaneously created the worst refugee crisis in Europe since the end of World War II. Approximately 17,000 Serbian lives were lost during the NATO bombing campaign, and it assumed that Serbian forces killed between 10,000 to 12,000 Kosovo Albanians. Furthermore, in response to NATO attacks, the FRY dramatically stepped up its military assault on the ethnic Albanian population in Kosovo, and K4 failed to protect Serbs from deadly revenge attacks in the aftermath. Human Rights Watch claims that the short-term humanitarian outcome was highly negative. NATO airstrikes caused between 600 and 5,000 Serbian military deaths, and one of the worst incidents of civilian deaths was the bombing of the headquarters of Serbian radio and television in the centre of Belgrade, causing 500 deaths alone. And now let's turn to the effectiveness of the NATO intervention in Libya. Many commentators believe that U.S. policy prioritized short-term goals such as regime change over long-term success in Libya. In reality, the strategy called for a sustained diplomatic effort, coupled with limited military engagement. According to researcher Stanley Igwe in a 2017 report entitled An Assessment of the Motivations for the 2011 NATO Intervention in Libya, the conflict resulted in more than 30,000 deaths. 50,000 injured and 4,000 missing. Since the collapse of the Central Authority in 2014, key institutions, most notably law enforcement and the judiciary, have been dysfunctional in most parts of the country ever since. So let's wrap up with some concluding remarks. The independence of Kosovo ushered in a new era of Russian geopolitical tradition towards Europe and cooperation with NATO, Kosovo's independence was the breaking point where relations between NATO and Russia became highly negative rather than positive. Prior to that, disputes between both sides were on the rise due to NATO's active enlargement and attempts to attract Ukraine and Georgia into the alliance. Despite NATO's participation in Kosovo being labelled as an example of humanitarian intervention, the military intervention was in direct conflict with the notion of state sovereignty set forth in the United Nations Charter, Article 4. Undoubtedly, the interventions of NATO military forces in Kosovo, Afghanistan and Libya have affected Russian foreign and security policies after the Cold War. The 9-11 events illustrated that despite obstacles created by the Kosovo War in 1999, Russia was ready to cooperate with the alliance. The year 2002 was promising for both sides. Eventually, positive geopolitical discourses led to the establishment of the NATO-Russia Council, where decisions and actions were taken on a joint basis. However, NATO's unilateral decisions and specific geopolitical discourses towards these crises excluded Russia from crisis management in Libya and especially in Kosovo, which at the beginning of 2008 declared its independence. The Kosovo crisis in 2008 marked the end of the Russian flexible policy towards NATO and essentially paved the way for a more hostile, more permanent geopolitical discourse against NATO in Europe. 
And this can be demonstrated by several examples. Firstly, despite the global economic crisis and the fall of oil prices in the period of 2008 to 2010, Russia gradually raises military spending by 40% from $66 billion in 2008 to $93 billion in 2013. Secondly, in order to create a counterbalance to NATO, Russia set up the CSTO, or Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a military alliance in Eurasia consisting of select post-Soviet states. And these members include Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Consequently, Moscow established the Collective Rapid Reaction Force in 2009 and in 2010, CSTO approved a peacekeeping force. Such attempts suggest that Russia seeks to duplicate NATO's activity and eventually if Russia has an international peacekeeping force, it could have a legal basis also to intervene in crisis zones and unilaterally resolve conflicts in the same way that NATO did in Kosovo, Libya or Afghanistan. Thirdly, the crisis discussed indicates that Europe became the fundamental sphere of interest for Russian geopolitical tradition over the last 15 years. With less interest and opposition to NATO in other regions, Russia concentrated the majority of its resources towards European affairs, including the Caucasus region, largely due to the negative impact of NATO's interventions in Kosovo, Libya and Afghanistan. Also, mutual cooperation and diplomatic disputes towards crises in Libya and Afghanistan are minor in comparison with how NATO-Russian relations are treated on the European continent. Firstly, the ongoing military conflict in Ukraine 2022 proves that Russia is ready to defend its geopolitical tradition in Europe. Secondly, disputes in Kosovo, Georgia, Crimea and eastern Ukraine suggest that the Russian geopolitical tradition towards Europe takes priority in comparison to other geopolitical traditions such as Eurasia or Russia as a bridge between East and West. And finally, NATO intervention in Libya is deemed to be the most controversial due to its failure in outlining what the true objectives were. Although the intervention was framed under R2P, responsibility to protect, it is clear that regime change was the main objective for NATO. However, the final stumbling block for NATO was its alteration of mission objectives because it fundamentally questions the legitimacy of the intervention and of NATO itself. And when we project this analysis onto the current military conflict in Ukraine, how can we be sure that NATO's objectives to promote democratic values and independent self-rule in Ukraine are wholly honourable? And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company today. And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays at 9am Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.